It's natural for children to be like their parents, even to imitate their parents. It's a little bit hard not to, quite frankly. In some cases, it can be a little unsettling. But when it comes to imitating our Heavenly Father, it is exactly what we must hope for, exactly what we must pray for. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message today entitled Imitators of God. And Jonathan, as you point out, very often our kids look to us and they begin to imitate us before they begin to look at others around them. Hey, you got a story about one of your kids looking to you? One of those things where you went, oh man, <laughs> I wish they hadn't picked up that about me. Well, I don't want to embarrass any of my kids, but the interesting thing is, of course, you observe your kids and you do notice them doing certain things that you do, the the awkward mannerism uh-huh. or the, the turn of phrase that they pick up and you think, where did that come from? And of course, after a moment's reflection, you think, oh yeah, that's me right there. <laughs> I think every parent can relate to that. And uh, once they see that behavior, once they hear that uh, phrase come out of their kid's mouth, they're cringing just a little bit. But as we look to our Heavenly Father, never a reason to cringe on behavior there. Well, that's right. And we're in the middle of the middle of a section here in Ephesians where Paul is calling us to a radically different way of life, a, a way of life that's unknown to the world around us. And in the midst of that call, he reminds us that the pattern of life that he is commending to us and calling us to, it, it, it hasn't come out of nowhere. It is modeled on the holiness and goodness of our our loving Heavenly Father himself. And so we look to our Father above to see the kind of character that he wants to build in our our lives and hearts. And that's what we're going to be looking at in today's broadcast. If you can, open your Bible and join us in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses of chapter 5 as we begin this message, Imitators of God. Here is Jonathan. Here in this central section of Ephesians that we're studying together, Paul sets out for us a radical ethic for the people of God. If you were with us last week, you will have felt the force of Paul's teaching, the startlingly high standard he sets for us, in particular in our relationships within the Christian community. He showed us those patterns of life belonging to the old self, the old me, that we need to set aside daily. And he reminded us of the godly character that we need to put on daily with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, like those in the dentist's chair, hoping that the drilling will soon come to an end, we reach the end of Ephesians 4, hoping that Paul might now be done with this uncomfortable work of highlighting our sin and calling us to holiness. It's made for hard reading. It made for hard listening last week. But as we dig in now to chapter 5, we discover that, no, he's not finished. There's more to come in this call to a radical new way of life. But as Paul continues to challenge us with the practicalities of this new way of life, he now sets out for us three key bases, three key foundations for this call to radically distinctive living. And the first of his foundations is this. It is the love of God. Chapter 5 and verse 1, notice it again with me. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
For many, it is an unsettling moment when they realize that they have officially become their mother or their father. The moment usually comes somewhere in midlife, normally in the vicinity of that dreaded midlife crisis. You suddenly realize that the carefully formed, unique, and slightly rebellious identity that you had carefully carved out for yourself is largely a myth. And you see that you've sort of settled into the rather strange idiosyncrasies and habits that you noticed in your mother and father, the ones you vowed you would never imitate, never fall into. For Father's Day a couple of years ago, the Globe and Mail published a piece where various of their staff writers just shared a snapshot of how they see themselves becoming like their father in adulthood, in middle age. Amidst lots of touching anecdotes from childhood, these writers share how their father's physical characteristics or quirky habits are kind of coming through in themselves now many decades on from childhood. One writer opens his piece in this way. My father had been dead just over 40 years the morning I saw his face in the mirror. This was summer, a couple of years ago while holidaying in Surrey, B.C. I just bowed my head to turn on the taps in preparation for a facial splash. But before I did, I stole a quick upward glance in the mirror, and there I wasn't. Instead, there was the face of my father where mine used to be. It's natural for children to be like their parents, even to imitate their parents. It's a little bit hard not to, quite frankly. In some cases, it can be a little unsettling. But when it comes to imitating our Heavenly Father, it is exactly what we must hope for, exactly what we must pray for. We are to imitate our Father above, Paul tells us, as those who are His dearly loved children. And we are to imitate him specifically by living this life of love. The word therefore here at the beginning of verse 1 reminds us that Paul is referring back to the behaviors he had spoken of and outlined at the end of chapter 4. We are to love our brothers and sisters within the Christian family, within the church, no matter what strains or difficulties may come our way. There's no doubt that children learn more from their parents than they ever realize. And when it comes to this capacity to love, those who have been loved as children have a huge advantage in knowing how to love others, even how to love their own children. And of course, it is a sad reality that those who have not been shown very much love as children find it harder to know how to love well and to express love to other people. And so Paul says here, he reminds us that we are dearly loved children. We are those who have experienced and who have received lavish and gracious love. We have been adopted into the Father's family. And as one song puts it, He has seen fit to make a wretch His treasure. It's astounding, but there it is. We are beloved children of the Heavenly Father if we belong to Jesus Christ. But Paul now drives home the point a little further. In imitating God in his love, we take our special and specific cue from the Lord Jesus himself and from the love that he has shown to us at Calvary. We are to live a very intentional and very costly life of love, love to those whom we find difficult, love in hard situations. We are to live this life of love, Paul tells us, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
You know, I think we would all agree that it's a good thing to be loving. It's right to be loving in the kind of situations that Paul had in mind there at the end of chapter 4, in situations within the body of Christ, in church life where there could be malice or, or bitterness or slander. We all agree it would be good to be loving rather than malicious to those whom we find difficult and so on. But most of us would feel instinctively that there should be some limits to the extent of that love. Limits to the extent to which we will put ourselves out, make ourselves vulnerable, expose ourselves to further hurt or inconvenience. I think we would tend to think in terms of being loving insofar as it is practical and insofar as it is reasonable. And I think we'd all feel pretty comfortable with that kind of love. But here's the really inconvenient thing. The model of love we are given here is the model of Jesus himself. And the model of love we are given in Jesus Christ, it smashes through any hedge we would place around our obligations to love. It rides right over any barriers of convenience that we might set up. You and I say, we say, well, let's love to a point. Let's love to the extent that it's reasonable. Let's love to the extent where our emotional energy will just hold out. But how did Christ love us? To what extent did Jesus love us? Well, end of verse 2. He gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, that is a very densely packed statement on the nature and the extent of the love of Jesus at the cross. We could spend all morning and more just reflecting on those few words. We won't do that, but let's just think about them together here for a moment. Paul tells us that Jesus gave himself up. Consider that for a moment. When we read the story of the arrest, the abuse, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus, it might look as though he was the victim of circumstance, that he was swept up in events, in events beyond his control. But what does Paul tell us? What was actually happening? He gave himself up. It was done willingly. It was planned. It was his intention. It was his design. You see, it's one thing to be swept up in a disaster, to fall victim to injustice, to die even an agonizing death at the hands of wicked men. But to enter into all that intentionally, to choose to do such a thing, now that is astounding. But the next words of Paul, they take that fact to another level. For not only did Jesus give himself up intentionally, but he did so, Paul says, for us. He did so for you, and he did so for me. He faced the shame of the trial, the cruelty of the mockers, the agony of the crucifixion, and he did it for me, he did it for you. And we look on at that and we say in wonder, we sing in wonder, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? He gave himself up, and he did so for us. But to what purpose? To what aim? Well, he gave himself up as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The language of offering and sacrifice, of course, takes us back to the Old Testament, 
and to the temple system. And it reminds us that God has always required payment for sin. It has always been necessary for there to be a death, for guilt to be removed. That had to happen over and over and over again at the temple, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. But the fragrant, sweet-smelling sacrifice of Jesus, it is pleasing, it is acceptable to God the Father in a way that those earlier sacrifices never could be. Those animal sacrifices, they were never ultimately sufficient. They were never final. But Jesus gave the sacrifice of all sacrifices, and he gave it to the Father to pay the price of our guilt, to cleanse us from sin, to reconcile us to God, to die that we should not face eternal death, to die that you and I might live. And Paul says to us, having been loved in such a way, having received such incomprehensible and such breathtaking love, he says, now live a life of love. Live a life of true love, costly love, sacrificial love, love that pays the price and does not count the cost. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Imitators of God. It's part of a larger series where we're studying the book of Ephesians, taking a look today at Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 1 to 7. Our series is called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And if you miss any part of this series, you can always go to our website and listen online. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. Live a life of true love, costly love, sacrificial love, love that pays the price and does not count the cost. And so, friends, confronted with such a love, here is the simple question. Do we love one another like that? Are we loving one another today in that kind of a way? Where are we learning to do that? And I believe we are. Well, let's rejoice in it as a sign of God's gracious work in our hearts and our lives. Where are we failing to do it? Where are we falling short of the standard of God in this? Well, let's repent of it. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, let's learn afresh the love of God in Christ. That's the first foundation for this radical ethic, the love of God. And the next one is this. It is the holiness of God's people. Verses 3 and 4. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. When I was a kid, like many of you perhaps, we had a uniform that we wore at our school, and there was this idea that a sense of identity and even decorum should be attached to the uniform. You wear the blazer with the crest and the tie and so on, and it says you belong to this particular institution, this particular community, and you represent and exemplify its values. And of course, what would happen is that kids would walk home or take the subway home from school wearing their uniform, and inevitably, once or twice a year, a student would be seen in uniform doing something not befitting the good name of the institution, 
and the principal would get a call from a concerned member of the community. And then, of course, in the assembly or whatever the next morning, we would all be reminded that there is a certain way in which one behaves as a member of this community and as a representative of this school. There is fitting behavior and unfitting behavior. And you need to know and you need to remember the difference. In verse 3, Paul reminds us that we are God's holy people. To be holy means to be set apart for a special purpose, to be fit for God's presence, to be fit for his service. We are a holy people if we belong to Jesus, not because we have a record of particularly good behavior that has earned us holiness. No, we are holy because we are cleansed by the blood of Christ and we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have a new heart and we have a new uniform. We have a new identity, and we have a new community. And as such, there is a proper way to behave and an improper way to behave. There are types of behavior and types of conversation that are out of place. And there are types of behavior and types of conversation that are entirely fitting. And as we go about life in this world, as we walk to our homes or get on the train or sit at our desk or drive in our car or meet with our friends, we need to remember who we are. We need to remember to whom we belong, whom we represent in the world. Among his holy people, insists Paul, there must be not so much as a hint of certain types of things. Literally, these things must not even be named among you. And the things that Paul has in mind, they shouldn't really surprise us. I think they're obvious things. Sexual immorality, which in the Bible simply speaks of all forms of sexual activity outside biblical marriage, outside heterosexual marriage. The Bible makes it crystal clear right from the book of Genesis and all the way through that God's good design for sexual intimacy is for a man and a woman within the context of marriage. And any sexual activity outside of that one confine and one design, one context, any sexual activity outside of it falls under the banner of sexual immorality. Now, that's the biblical sexual ethic in a nutshell. It raises a thousand issues for us. It is challenging to live out, no question, but the principle itself, it's clear enough from Scripture. In case the term sexual immorality isn't all-encompassing enough to cover compromising behavior in the sexual realm, Paul adds the even broader descriptor, all types of impurity. And right there in our age of casual sexual relationships, of society's rejection of biblical marriage as the uniquely appropriate context for sexual intimacy, in our age of almost unimaginable rates of pornography use, of so much sexualized content in mainstream media, in our highly sexualized society, the challenge of God's Word to us here is immense. Not only must we avoid falling headlong into illicit sexual relationships, we must avoid even the hint, the very mention of such things in our lives and in our community. And, you know, we read that, and I think we're tempted to give up right away. We're tempted to give up because some will read that and think, this is just impossible. 
in this world, in this sexualized society, with my sinful heart, the standard of God's Word for us, it is just too high. Some will read that and think this idea of not even a hint. Paul, the hint is way back in the rearview mirror. I can barely see it anymore. And Paul, he's not naive. You only need to read his letters in the New Testament. He's not naive even about the sin in which Christians will sometimes engage. He tells us these things not because he's unrealistic, but because he knows that we desperately need to hear them. And if this comes to us as a wake-up call from the Word of God, it is meant to come to us as a wake-up call from the Word of God. Paul wants us to listen, and where we need to, he calls us to repent. To the list, Paul now adds greed. And it's pretty interesting that he groups greed with sexual immorality and impurity. That actually sounds like a little bit of an odd fit to me on first reading. But actually, as we reflect on it, I believe there is a profound insight here. Actually, sexual immorality and greed for money and for material things, they're more aligned than we might initially think and initially imagine. You see, sexual immorality is about taking something that is not rightfully mine something not given to me as a gift of God. It's wanting some experience or some person that is not mine and that I don't have and that I shouldn't have. And, you know, greed is really just the same thing. In fact, down in verse 5, Paul tells us that any greedy person is, in fact, an idolater. And that really gets us to the heart of things. Idolatry, what is it? Well, it's living for anything other than God, finding our identity and our fulfillment and our purpose in anything or anyone apart from the God who made us. And in both sexual immorality and in greed, you see people giving up everything. You've seen it, haven't you? Giving up relationships and career and family and health and faith, setting aside everything to pursue this one thing. And of course, this one thing, it becomes a God replacement in my life. It becomes a God alternative. And these things, they are the idols for which the godless live. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Imitators of God. Now, we have to pause right here, but we'll come back and continue this message next time. Now, I do hope you'll make it a point to tune in and listen on the radio, but if you can't for some reason, you can always come and listen at our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also listen through the Encounter the Truth app, which is free, and you'll find that at your favorite app store. Another way that you can connect with Jonathan's teaching is to head to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, And check out our weekly devotionals. Just click on the link that says Moment of Truth. Again, that's at EncounterTheTruth.org and click on Moment of Truth. And then when you're at the website, click on the contact link. Let us know where you're listening, why you're listening, and how Jonathan's teaching has been an encouragement to you. Again, our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, each month we want to say thank you for your financial support by sending you a resource that we think will help you grow in your relationship with God and the understanding of His Word. And Jonathan, this month you've picked out a book called Out of the Storm, Grappling with God in the Book of Job. And I think when a lot of us think about Job, we think about suffering. Uh, What does this book have for us for those who are struggling and really suffering right now? 
Well, this very rich and wonderful little book is essentially an exposition of the book of Job. It's an opening up of the text, but to deal with this question of suffering. Where does Job take us on this journey to seek to understand suffering within the plans and purposes of God? What do we learn of God through Job and also through the experience of suffering as we walk through suffering? As, as so many, I'm, I'm conscious, so many listeners at the present time will be walking through suffering how, how do we make sense of that through the book of Job? And one of the really wonderful things that Christopher Ashe does in this book is as he opens up the book of Job for us and walks us through this journey of suffering along with Job, he points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and teaches us how we find hope in the Lord Jesus, the one who came and willingly suffered in our place that we might be redeemed and have hope as we trust in him. Well, we'd love to send you a copy of this book, Out of the Storm, as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. To find out more, give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.